Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at NewBalance.com. And if you don't know who I am, here's a quick bio. I'm a veteran sports journalist who writes, does TV, radio, and is a longtime podcaster. Also, I have stage four prostate cancer. During the initial stages of the 2020 pandemic, my doctors advised me to stay at home. But now, two years later, I'm not only healthy, but I've been declared in remission. But I'm still continuing this podcast, during which I'm calling the many friends, athletes, coaches, and colleagues who I've met throughout my 30 years in this industry. And now I'm also calling some new people to make some new friends. Oh, and I'm hitting the record button. Welcome to my life and the Life of Fitz podcast. Hey everyone, it's Fitz. And you know what? I started this podcast three years ago when the pandemic was roaring and I was locked up at home, fearful of going out because I had active stage four cancer. It caused me to decide to start calling friends. And not just call friends to catch up, but to incorporate work. Kind of what I do, I guess. I called a lot of friends. That first season had great discussions. And the following season, I shortened it because there was sports again. I had much more to do with work. But we just did a nice little, what, 12-episode season or so. Caught up with some people. They were great conversations. Two of them were Matt Miller, the former K-State quarterback, and former Kansas State President John Weefold. Both, as I start this season three, are gone. It's hard to believe Matt Miller died right around Christmas, right in the New Year's, a couple days following his dad's passing. And I'll get into President Weefold later in the season, but I wanted to start this season by revisiting Matt and speaking with his older brother, Marty who is a scout with the Jacksonville Jaguars in the family business of football. And this is where I want to start season three. This one is for my friend Matt Miller. And bless his brother Marty for being on this episode of the Life of Fitz podcast. And now let's call Marty Miller in Boise, Idaho, where I learned during this conversation is where he lives. Marty. Fitz, how are you? Good, brother. How are you doing, man? I'm doing all right. Good talking to you. So what's going on today in your busy life? My busy life, I am uh, doing a little bit of work. I'm a scout for the Jaguars. I'm watching some game tape of the Titans and the Texans and doing some reports. So when you say scout, are you like a, a, a scout of other NFL teams or a college player scout? I- Predominantly college players, but we have an occasional pro reports that are due. Okay. And as we as we get to know our team better, one of the things they have us do is watch the other teams in our division and compare our players with players on other teams in our division. So that's kind of what I'm finishing up right now. So it's a good project to get to know our team and get to know the teams that we play most often. Are you uh, Jacksonville-based? or? I am based in Boise, Idaho. And I, I did not know scout. that. Yes, so I scout primarily the West Coast and the Northwest part of the U.S., um, and uh, it's been a good situation. I've been here 13 years, and we really love it. Boise is a great town. That's really interesting. It's uh, it's a beautiful city, isn't it? Oh, it's great. It's been great. It's grown a lot. Actually, the housing market uh, has really taken off here in the last few years, so that's been nice as well. Um, one of the things I love about this podcast, and by the way, this is the podcast, this is all we're going to do, um, it is 
I get asked people stuff, and this is totally random, and I never expect to ask this. Would Boise be a good fit in the Big 12? I think Boise would be a great fit in the Big 12. I mean, uh, they would have to increase some in sports, I think, probably add some sports. They don't have a baseball team. and There's certain sports they'd have to add, but I think they'd be an outstanding fit, especially from a football standpoint. It's a great program with you know, a good tradition here, and they've won a lot. I think they'd be uh, competitive, and they'd play a good brand of football. So now I think it would be a good good fit. Here's a really hard hitting question: How do you feel about the blue field? I do not love the blue field, but <laughs> I, it's hard to watch. I agree with that sometimes, but uh, I do like the notoriety it brings to the city. Most people, when you go anywhere, know something about Boise at least besides potatoes. That's true. That's very true. Um, yeah, it's, I'm not a big fan of the blue field, and someone has a red field too. I'm like, what are we doing yeah. here? Don't know. Yeah, eastern Eastern Washington That's has right. a red field. I think Central Arkansas has a purple and gray field. So there's a few of them out there now, but Boise is the first. No, no. Well, it's not been an easy six months, eight months for the Miller family. Um, it's been a ride, hasn't it? It has not been ideal, no. Yeah. Starting with two years ago when Matt was diagnosed with cancer, and at that time when he was diagnosed, you know, the, as you know, the prognosis was fairly grim from the beginning, and so we knew it was going to be an uphill battle for him. And you know, unfortunately, you know, at the end of the year last year, he started feeling really sick again, and you know, when he went into the hospital around Christmas time is when they had basically given him the news that he was not going to make it much longer, you know, coinciding with that right around Thanksgiving time, my father had had a heart attack and had gone into the hospital and just never really recovered from that heart attack. Uh, briefly did a little bit better, but then um, by mid December, it was pretty clear he was not going to uh, make it much longer. And so, that uh, kind of set up the beginning of the year for us to kick off the year not in an ideal situation. Yeah, it was uh, the one-two punch. Uh, how did the family handle all that? Uh, I mean, I think you, you know, my father was 84. His health had started to decline, so you, know, you didn't expect him to live much longer, I don't think. But still, when something like that happens, you're not expecting it at any time. Like I said with Matt as well, you know, we knew that he was, you know, he was sick and was struggling, but still it's, you know, it's a lot to take on, especially at one time, especially for my mom. You know, she'd been with my dad since she was in high school. They were both 84, so they'd been together a long time and, you know, change is difficult. So when, uh, when that happens, you know, my brother and my sister, older brother and older sister, we kind of had to divide and conquer. My sister spent most of that time with my mom, and then I flew into Kansas City around Christmas time to be with Matt. And and so and then my brother, older brother went back and forth between both my mom and me to kind of help out during that time. But uh, yeah, it was a lot to take on, and, and uh, I'm glad we had one another during that yeah. time. So yeah. it was uh, It was definitely, I, I said it was a gut-wrenching experience, but it was also very life-affirming, uh, friendship-affirming with the people that rallied around Matt. And I think a lot has been written and said about that time. And and uh, so, you know, it was obviously tough to go through, but you really learned a lot about yourself, learned a lot about Matt, learned a lot about my family and our friends during that time. And, you know, so much support. It was outstanding. Well, all of us who knew Matt knew his you know, his life was kind of a roller coaster, and uh, right. he went through some real struggles. Uh, I, but no one deserves what when he faced at the end. Uh, he advanced prostate cancer is as ugly as it gets, um, and he didn't fit any of the parameters for a person who should have advanced prostate cancer, but. That's, no. that's what it is. I mean, he was much too young um, and was incredibly aggressive. But, boy, he fought like hell, didn't he? Oh, he did. And I think that, you know, we used to 
we used to joke when Matt was when Matt was young, he was not the toughest kid in the world. <laughs> so uh, you gave him a, a, a pacifier and a blanket and put him on a chair and he would sit there for hours and he loved to be held by his mom. And, you know, he, he cried a lot and was not the toughest kid in the world, but boy, he overcame that and uh, was super tough there at the end of his life. And during his, I think that epitomized, I think if you watched him play football, if you watched him play sports, I think that's what people would say about Matt, that he was an extremely tough. Yeah. Matt's decline was just, it was painful. I mean, it was just unbelievable to watch someone that had been so healthy and had gotten himself back kind of on track and and to have this happen is just it's unfathomable. Yeah, it really was. And you know, there was a little bit of you know, he had his third round of chemo had started in November. And that was something that he wasn't sure he wanted to try to go through again and endure. And you know, I had talked to him on the phone a couple of times. And finally I just said, you know, and he even echoed this was that if he didn't give it one more shot to try to fight it one last time, he would always regret it. And so he went through that round of chemo. I went and visited him in November and that was a great time. We were able to go out and play golf. We went to some restaurants, we went back to our childhood home and kind of walked through our neighborhood and had a lot of time to, you know, catch up on memories and, go through things in the Kansas city area and, and meet with friends and get together and just do a bunch of things. And so that was really nice. But shortly after I left around Thanksgiving time, he started feeling, you know, really bad again. And it was clear that the chemo was not working and he did not want to spend Christmas at the hospital. He had done that, you know, the year before. And, you know, that was the last thing he wanted to do, but there on the 23rd of December, he just was too sick at home and, and went into the hospital. And then on Christmas Eve, he called and said that uh, the doctors said that they just couldn't do anything else for him. And so, you know, that's a, that's a very difficult phone call to get. Yeah. And he was obviously just brokenhearted about that. And initially I was pretty bitter and upset with his doctors for telling him on Christmas Eve because it was just a rough Christmas. But in retrospect, you know, thinking about it, it was really the best thing that could have happened because he was able to call his daughters, get them to come into town. He was able to spend Christmas with family and get people there to be with him. And, uh, you know, he had a lot of friends in Kansas City rallied around him. And, you know, it, it was a situation where after Christmas, I, you know, I talked to him and I said, hey, I'll come there. And I'll be with you until the end, however long that is. And uh, my work was great with me, and they, they let me go and be with him. And I got there. You know, my plan was to travel on January 4th. And then three or four of his good friends called me on December 30th and said, Hey, I think you need to get here right now. Mm. And so I got on a plane, flew there. I got there Christmas Eve. Got to Kansas City around 11.45 p.m. on Christmas Eve. Was able to ring in the New Year with Matt, and he was awake and talking. And, you know, we had a great time that evening. And and so I was able to be there on the 31st. And, you know, it was just it was a great experience. And we'll kind of talk more about, you know, how that all it ended up being an even more amazing experience. The fact that I got there on the 31st and... Uh, you know, was able to spend four or five days with him that where he was really lucid and aware. And had I waited four or five days, I wouldn't have had that time. So I was very grateful to his friends for intervening because one thing about Matt, is he always put a positive spin on the situation. So if you asked him, you know, what did the doctors say? He would always say, you know, I'm doing better. I'm, you know, he, he just didn't want people to be depressed about his situation. And so you never had a great gauge on the time frame of what they were telling him because he would always say, you know, I think if they said you've got three months to live, he would say, I've got six months to live mm -hmm. or, you know. And so towards the end there, you know, I, I needed other people to that were around him to tell us, you guys need to get here right now. And my wife and I flew there and were able to spend that time with him. And, you know, that hospital experience, I think you – know, the KU Med Center said he was the most visited patient they'd ever had. 
in the cancer ward. It was a steady stream of people coming to visit him. It was absolutely an amazing experience to see the outpouring of love and friendship with people just coming to visit him in those days. Um, you know, un- unbelievable. Well, it was that ongoing optimism. Every time I talked to him, he was so upbeat, so happy. You would never know from talking to the man on the phone because you couldn't see him that he was dying. And he knew he was dying unless he really, really beat the odds. But he never gave up the hope that he was going to be the one to beat the odds. And that's kind of the way you need to approach it. It just didn't work out. Yeah, I think that that, that optimism, it uh, it rubbed off on everybody who saw him and visited him in the hospital, even the nurses and the doctors that's a very tough situation, you know, tough job to have. I can't imagine the stress and the heartache that they feel, but they do an excellent job of also detaching themselves. And it was clear that they were not detached from Matt. They loved Matt. His doctors loved Matt. Uh, his The nurses loved Matt. You know, one nurse in particular, you know, took care of him. Every time he went into KU Med Center, she always went out of her way to uh, take care of him and his daughters and take care of our family, brought us meals, you know, brought us, uh, did our laundry for us. I mean, it was, it was incredible, the outpouring. Another one of the nurses, you know, the last few days, I think on January 4th was when Matt really took a turn for the worse. And from the 4th to the 8th, he was, you know, uh, unconscious or, you know, was non-responsive to us. It right. basically slipped into a coma at that point uh, and uh, was, you know, sedated heavily and was not active. And one of the nurses, you know, on those days came into the room, talked to us and said, I've never cried in this job ever, but Matt has meant so much to me and your family has meant so much to me that I, I had one day I just had to go out to my car and sit in the car and cry. And uh, oh, that's just something that that I think Matt's optimism and his attitude had worn off on people, had rubbed off on people to where they had a great, great deal of love for him, even though they really didn't know him that well. You know, anyone who works in medical profession is amazing to me. But oh, incredible. those people that work in cancer wards or with cancer patients, I've dealt with them and... They're just a different breed. I, I don't know how they can pick themselves up and go to work every day and, and deal with uh, people who are quite literally fighting for their lives. And unfortunately, when they get into those situations where they're hospitalized, they're, they're probably going to lose. Often they lose. Um, and to deal with that every day, I just bless them. I don't know how they do it. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. When my work gets stressful, I think of those people and like, how? How do they put up with this stuff? You know, and every morning, every morning there was a debriefing time where the his team of doctors would come in. They would go through his charts and what they'd done for him the day before, and talk about the situation. They did that every morning, and the family was in there with them, and we got to hear that. And uh, towards the end, I think it was the third or fourth day that I was there, they came in and they told Matt, you know, what they had done the day before, and. Basically, then his main doctor at that time just said, Matt, I need to put this in terms that you'll understand. And uh, he said, okay, because he just kept fighting and coming up with ideas of things, you know, have we tried this? Can we do this treatment? Have we tried this medicine? And finally, the uh, his main nurse or main doctor said to him, Matt, you are losing by 30 points right now. And there's one minute left in the game. And you need to take a knee. And yeah. when she she put it in terms like that for him, you could just see that you know, it was terms he could understand. And he said, uh, well, what if we do this? And, you know, he, he was not going to lose by 30. Mm-hmm. He was going to throw. He was going to throw a couple of Hail Marys out there. If he was going to lose, he was going to lose by 14 yep. or 16. He, he was not going to lose by 30 points. He was not going to go out like that. And uh, he, you know, he kept fighting until the very end. And, you know, even though they had told him, you know, let's transition you to hospice-type care, 
and we'll make you comfortable. There's just nothing else we can do. And uh, when they walked out of the room, I think the realization really sunk in for him. And it was a couple hours later that he said to us, you know, I, I, I just want to be comfortable and I don't want to suffer. And, you know, I'm ready. And that, that was tough mm. to hear him say. That was tough to hear him say. And, you know, obviously tough for all of us to go through. But, you know, he he um, he had begun to live his life in he would set goals, time goals. So he'd say, I want to reach my daughter's graduation. I want to reach this date. And uh, one of the things he said, I think on Sunday, Tuesday, the Tuesday coming up was the Kansas state LSU football game. And he said, I just want to, I want to watch K-State play one more time. And uh, I want to do it with my family and I want to have a steak dinner. And all of a sudden, you know, it sunk in that, he had set these goals, these time frame goals, and now his life had narrowed to the point where those goals were now days or hours. He was just hoping to live that much longer. And, uh, you know, he was able to make it to the K-State game. He wasn't in a great mood that night. Hmm. He was feeling really bad, but he was able to see the Wildcats you know, pull out one last victory. So you know, that, that was a special time for all of us to experience that. And, K-State meant so much to him and meant so much to our family that you know, that was a that was a neat, neat moment to have. We were all decked out in gear and, you know, had, had a great time watching the game together. When you've gone through watching a brother kind of wilt away, is it hard to balance those memories of the final days um, with all the great things, the great memories you have? Um, you know, his spirit was was such that yeah, I, now I look at pictures of him in the hospital and I realize how sick he was. But, you know, his attitude was so good and you were having such yeah. a great time with him that it didn't feel that much different than, you know, I think on the Monday, the last Monday night, uh, the night before the K-State game was one of the best nights. He was in a great mood. All of his, I mean, there were probably, now there were COVID protocols in place at the hospitals. We were having to cycle people through. But I would guess that 20 to 30 ex-teammates came through that evening mm. and, you know, cycled through during the course of the night. And everybody told stories about Matt, and he laughed. And at that point, he was he was eating candy and, you know, doing all kinds of things that, you know, eating donuts, anything unhealthy. He was not eating healthy anymore. He was having bags of candy and guzzling them down and you know, drinking Cokes and doing all kinds of stuff. People were just laughing and telling stories about the time they had with him. And that, that was really a special moment. You know, teammates from grade school on up through his time at K-State in baseball and football, it, it was a really special night. And so I think that was a great moment for him. And that, that was a special moment for everybody. And you know, then by Tuesday evening when he went to sleep, you know, he was not real responsive from there on out. But uh, you know, by golly, he was as tough as nails. We you know, his doctors told us I don't think he's gonna last much longer once he went into kind of a sedated state. But lo and behold, he you know, hung on for five days mm. you know, and didn't did not want to go, I don't think, you know, at all. And even in even in the midst of that toughness, a tough situation, he was fighting until the very end. It was a testimony to his grit and determination. Before we get into some of the great stories about Matt, um, you do have a memorial coming up in July. Um, fill me in on the details. Fill in the, everyone in on the details of what's going to happen in Manhattan. Uh, you know, a number of people had reached out and said, you know, at the, at the time of, you know, you're just so overwhelmed as a family. We just took a step back and we said, we'd like to do something for both my father and brother this summer. And there is an event in Kansas State where a lot of Kansas State football players are in Manhattan where a lot of Kansas State football players are coming back there the first week of July. And so we talked with people there and there were people who reached out and said, let's do a memorial for Matt around that time. And so Thursday evening, 
I think it's July 7th. We are going to do a memorial for Matt in Manhattan at the Beaumont Hotel. And, you know, anybody's welcome to come out and new Matt and experience life with Matt. And we're just going to, well, ex-teammates are going to speak. Coach Snyder's going to speak. And it's been about an hour and a half just celebrating his life. I think that'll be a good moment of closure for a lot of us and his family and for teammates, and people to be there. And so that'll be Thursday, July 7th from probably 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. at the Bluemont Hotel. So we'd love to have anybody come out who wants to. And the night before, actually in Kansas City, on Wednesday the 6th at 5.30, we're going to meet at a restaurant in Kansas City and just kind of tell stories about Matt and my dad uh, at a barbecue restaurant in Kansas City called uh, Meet Mitch. And uh, so, you know, anybody, either Kansas City or Manhattan, if you make either of those events, we'd love to see people there and, and um, remember Matt and remember my father. And, and uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to that, just being able to relive great times, hear things, talk about Matt. Hey, it's Fitz. Let's hit the pause button right here and take a little break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So Matt was such a a force. I mean, he really was. You could see him, whether he was on the football field or coaching or or just living life, he was a force with which you had to reckon. And uh, I imagine there's some great stories about your brother, Um Give me some young stories about young Matt Miller. I love the fact that uh, he, he needed to take his naps because I can relate to that. I just did it before I called you. Um, but he, yeah. had to, he had to be something as a little brother. He, he was he was something. I'll, I'll tell you. One thing we talked about is his lack of toughness when he was a little kid. <laughs> My mom would always tell the story when he was in preschool after he uh, – his first day of preschool, my mom would pick him up. The teacher said, you've got to do something with your son. He cried. He cried all day long for you. So much so, so much so that all of the kids were crying. She goes, ah. He made everybody cry because he was crying so much, calling for his mom. And so she talked to him and sent him back to school the next day. And lo and behold, about midday, Teacher called and said, you need to come and pick him up. I, I can't deal with him anymore. He's crying all day again. So my mom drove up to the preschool and pulled him aside and said, now, Matt, why are you crying? He said, I miss you and I want to be home with you. I don't like being away from you. And she said, well, Matt, I'm going to tell you something. If you don't stay in school, they're going to arrest me <laughs> and put, put me in jail. <laughs> And you'll never see me again. So, so you need to make sure that you stay in school. Kid never cried one more time. He, uh, he went to school. He was not going to have his mom go to jail and have him not be with her. So he gutted it out, stayed in school, never cried, you know, and uh, made sure that mom was there for him the rest of his life. That's and, funny. And uh, that, that was just kind of how Matt was. He was a lover and not a fighter. Definitely uh, at that point in his life. You know, one of my favorite stories about Matt, too, was the first year that he had played flag football a couple of seasons. And Ben, he was just a naturally gifted athlete. So in flag football, he, he was so dominant uh, that he was big and fast. 
so much so that that second season he played, my older brother was his coach. The championship game, they decided that the only way to make it fair would be to play match team versus an all-star team of all the other teams in the league. And so they took all the other teams, best players, and put them on one team to play against Matt's team. And Matt ran all over and ended up winning that game. They went undefeated. And then the next year was his first year of tackle football. So he was extremely excited about that until we realized that there was a weigh-in system. And so you had to make a certain weight in order to carry the football. And so Matt went and weighed in and did not make weight. And so they, back then you could never do this now, but, they they took a big like a hazmat sticker. It was like an uh, it was like a triangle. It was neon like a neon yellow or neon orange, and they stuck it on players' helmets who could not carry the ball. And so Matt had this neon orange sticker triangle on his helmet, and he hated that. He had to play offensive and defensive line. There was one game where he intercepted the pass as a defensive line when he started running. He was so excited that he was finally going to get to carry the ball. And they blew the whistle immediately because they didn't want anybody to get hurt by this big kid running around. And so he never got to carry the ball. And he made sure that that next year he was going to make weight. So he made weight. And, you know, that next year he's a quarterback and you know, never moved from the position. But he, he hated that uh, sticker on his helmet and made sure that that didn't happen again. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, you couldn't do that now. No. No. Um, was he a natural quarterback or just someone that because he was the best athlete, he ended up playing quarterback? I think he was a natural quarterback. I mean, we we were football was ingrained in our family. My dad was coaching at BYU when, when Matt and I were both born in Utah. You know, we've been around football our whole lives, and so it was ingrained in us. And, and, you know, one one thing that I think was a big advantage for Matt was the fact that we had a lot of friends. I had a lot of friends. He had a lot of friends. And there were, we were all the same age. So there's a lot of families whose kids, there's a three or four year age difference. So we all grew up playing games together. And so Matt, you know, at a young age was playing with kids that were older than him and being challenged and pushed. And so, you know, it was an idyllic situation for us growing up our backyard was the baseball field for the neighborhood our neighbors we had neighbors that had a great backyard for football with a big space so we you know, we would wake up in the morning and if it was the summer we would wake up we would go outside and uh, play baseball all day long maybe go to the pool for a couple hours in the community pool and then go back and play more baseball and, and if it was the fall, we did that with football. And it was pretty clear early that Matt was a natural at quarterback and and had leadership skills. I think that was one thing that was evident in dealing and talking with people is that Matt really had a unique ability to lead people. People wanted to play with him and play for him and sacrifice on his behalf. And he was willing. I think it was because people knew he was willing to do that. And he was just unique in that he had Matt had an ability to relate to anybody. And I think that that is a key element of a good leader and a good Mm -hmm. quarterback is it didn't matter if you were from a small town in Kansas, you know, and grown up on a farm or if you grew up in an urban, any inner city situation, Matt, he connected and related with guys and had a unique ability to be friends with just about any type of person from any socioeconomic upbringing, race, creed thoughts you know what matt just related with people and people love matt and that was evident with the people that came to visit it was just a cross-section of cultures and people that uh, matt connected with and i think you probably experienced that in dealing with him yeah i mean he was he just was magnetic he just kind of wanted to be around him because he was generally matt was so happy and when he put off that kind of energy people want to be around you there's no doubt. He was a definite life of the party. We said he, he was, you know, he, he had a lot of unique talents. He was, he had a photographic memory, always had used new useless facts. He, he loved to sing and dance. You know, if you got him on a dance floor at a wedding, he was, you know, he'd be like, look at this guy dance, you know, pretty smooth out there on the dance floor <laughs> and loved, uh, you know, loved being in front of people. And so, 
it was definitely a magnetic personality and, and a great leader. So he ends up at Kansas State playing for Coach Snyder. Um, I don't know. I just feel like no matter how much football you've been around, playing for Coach Snyder had to be kind of a shock to the system. Did you pick that up from him? I think playing for Coach Snyder and then, you know, coaching with Coach Snyder too, you know, those – you you uh, the demanding element of Coach Snyder – made you a better person. And I think that Matt was so loosey goosey that, you know, you wondered if thinking back on, I'm wondering why in the world would he have chosen to go play for coach Snyder? But I think that's what Matt needed was that structure and discipline that coach Snyder brought into his life. And, and, you know, coach Snyder was Matt loved coach Snyder beyond description and, you know, the times that Matt made decisions in his life that disappointed Coach, it was like he had disappointed, you know, he felt as bad about disappointing Coach Snyder as he did disappointing, you know, his own father. Mm-hmm. And Coach Snyder just meant so much to him. And despite, you know, the times that maybe Matt had, uh, you know, had made some poor choices, Coach Snyder never abandoned him and was always faithful to him and loved him. And, you know, so much so that, you know, Matt knew that he could call coach at any time. You know, Coach Snyder and Coach Clark, the baseball coach, came and visited Matt during the last week of his life. You know, I think that it rubbed off to where Matt, they meant a lot to him and vice versa. Yeah. It was, it was, a, it was reciprocated. Well, you, as you mentioned, um, you grew up playing sports and I, you know, I'm of the same era, sort of, so to speak. And, we'd hop on the bike and be gone all day playing sports and hanging out with friends. And, you know, we didn't have video games, might've had pong and nobody wanted to play that. Um, And so you were just immersed in sports, but on top of that, um, like you said, you're, it was a football family, not a family of people that enjoyed football. That was literally your, your dad's life. And of course I remember being a player personnel guy with the NFL and he also coached what was it like growing up in a house with someone that was so deeply immersed in the sport of football oh it was unbelievable it was great it was I couldn't have imagined anything you know you talk about when you were a little kid you, your birthday party some years was at the stadium we would just take my dad would take us up to the stadium and you know give the kids a tour and then let us play a game on the football you know in there our head on the field yeah, you know, what kid gets to do that? Very few. And be around players. Matt and I would go spend two weeks every summer with my dad and at uh, William Jewell Chiefs training camp. And, you know, we'd ride around on golf carts with the players and you know, they'd have nicknames for us. And, and uh, you know, it was an amazing experience. We would go. One thing my dad did that was amazing is every year he would let Matt or myself, we would alternate. He'd say, pick a college team Whatever bowl game they go to, I'll take you guys to it. And so we went and saw SMU was my team back in those days. And so uh, Eric Dickerson, we went and saw you know, SMU playing their bowl game. Matt liked Dan Marino, so he picked Pittsburgh one year. We went and saw Pittsburgh playing a bowl game. And, uh, you know, that, you know, it was just amazing. Then we would go to Hawaii to, to be at the Hula Bowl with my dad while he was scouting that game. And, We'd be riding in a car with Barry Switzer or you know, a famous coach who would ride over to practice with my dad. We'd be hearing the stories and having a great time. Hmm. There's uh, one year my Matt got for Christmas one year, my parents got Matt a tape recorder, an old tape recorder that, you know, kind of the rectangular, you yeah. know, looked like looked like a stereotype of thing. And Matt loved that tape recorder. He took it everywhere. And we have a, a tape of Matt when he was probably – third grade, second grade. And he took that to Hawaii with him when we went to the hula ball and he was interviewing players. And I can remember Marcus Allen, you know, Matt interviewing Marcus Allen and we would laugh and laugh and laugh at that interview because Matt, Matt was, he's, his voice was high pitched. Marcus, tell me how it felt to win the Heisman trophy. (laughs) And Marcus Allen, to his credit, acted like Matt was Howard Cosell. Well, uh, well, red. He called him red. Well, red. Uh, you know, it was, it was an honor to win the Heisman Trophy, and you know, to play at USC and to be here and to be here talking to you 
is, you know, a great honor. And it was so great, Matt. You know, who gets to have those experiences? Wow. But, uh, you know, from growing up in a football family, we got to have them. I was thinking back when, you know, when my dad took the job in Kansas City, we were coming off. He had been with the Dolphins for three seasons prior. He had won two Super Bowls. So, you know, we're thinking, man, what, football's easy. You just win. And, you know, you just walk out on the field, you win these games. Well, we get to Kansas City in 1976. That was, a, you know, they played 14 games back then. I think the Chiefs had gone one in 13 the year before you know, my dad took the job. And that was a really bad roster. And one thing that they, they did was one of the perks of my dad's job was they, they gave him a company car. And so we had this big red car. And because it was a company car, they put a gigantic chief's helmet magnet on the side of it. And we had to drive around town in that car. And Matt and I were so embarrassed because the team was so bad. And fans are fans. The chief's fans are great fans, but they're still fans. And they would yell at you and say, you guys stink. And the chiefs are terrible. And Matt and I would do anything we could to make sure we did not ride in my dad's car around town. We would ride with my mom everywhere if it meant uh, avoiding getting in that Chiefs car. But, you know, through the years, the team eventually got better, became a playoff team, and you know, those were great experiences for us. And, uh, you know, we were, we were lucky. We were in Kansas City 12 years. And so, you know, that's a long time to be in one city for an NFL team. And, you know, Matt got to, you know, have a, you know, idyllic childhood growing up there in Kansas City. And, we still have a lot of connection with the city. And actually my mom has just moved back there. So after my dad's passing, she decided to move back to Kansas city. She had been living in Oklahoma. So we'll be back there this summer. They're more often to visit. So that'll be nice. nice. Was it your path to the NFL? Was it kind of a logical progression of events that you kind of followed dad into the NFL business? Uh, initially I, I didn't, uh, I, my first uh, kind of, I knew that football was something I always wanted to be a part of, but it wasn't until about six or seven years after college that I said, you know, this, this is what I want to do. And so I actually, my first job was with the first XFL. So when the XFL started in 2001, I was a personnel, I got a job working with the Los Angeles team. And uh, we won the championship there. The league folded. And luckily, just through some connections with my dad and working for Al Luganville in the XFL, I was able to catch on in Jacksonville the next year. And that was 2002. And I've been there since. So I've been in Jacksonville 20 years. A great run. And, you know, I, I've, uh, I've been able to experience a lot. And, and you know, one... One aspect, one of the best players, you'll remember this player from our team when I was in the XFL was Darnell McDonald, mm -hmm. the wide receiver from Kansas State. And he was one of our better wide receivers and helped us win a championship there. And so you know, we, my dad worked in the CFL. I worked in the XFL. My dad worked in the NFL. We've got a CFL championship ring, an XFL championship ring, and an NFL Super Bowl ring in our family. So That's cool. We need to, we need to uh, have somebody – you know, work in an arena league and get one of those rings and we'll cover, <laughs> cover all the leagues. Yeah, that's so. pretty pretty cool. Um, and Matt was a hell of a baseball player too, wasn't he? Oh, he's outstanding. Yeah. I mean, that, and that was from a young age. I mean, his freshman year of high school was the only year he was in Kansas City. And his our baseball coach, Bill McDonald, legendary Kansas City area baseball coach, we coached both Matt and I, you know, came up to the hospital to visit Matt that last week. And he said, you know, he was brokenhearted when he found out Matt was leaving. And Matt had had finished his freshman year with 16 straight hits, not 16 game hitting streak, 16 straight at bats getting a hit is how he finished his freshman year. And That's then incredible. My family moved to Southern California, which was great for Matt from a recruiting standpoint. Really opened up a lot of doors. And his first year in San Diego, you know, he made the varsity there as a, a sophomore, played on a team that finished in the top 10 in the country, lost one game all season. I think they finished the year like 25 and one. 
and uh, won the CIF championship in California and I think finished ranked number eight in the country. And uh, Matt started three years there at that high school that produced a lot of major league baseball players and would have been a high draft pick coming out of high school in baseball. You know, the Mets had told him if you, if you will not commit to football and go straight to baseball, we will take you in an early round. But he was dead set on going and playing football and wanted to try to do both and, you know, went to A&M out of high school and, and had success on the baseball field, both at A&M and at Kansas State, which is, which is great. You know, one of the things Matt expressed to me um, as time progressed was his number of concussions uh, that he suffered on the football field. And we all remember, yeah. you know, the Holiday Bowl, of course, where um, he, he got KO'd and Brian Kavanaugh yeah. came in and um, had a great game. But as someone that's still in the football game, how troubling is the CT issue and how much did you see it reflect in your own brother? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that, you know, it's pretty clear that the concussion issues that players have suffered are lingering. And I'm very excited that the NFL and doctors are now more clued in on that. It's obviously the weight of evidence is there that, you know, something needs to be done. And a lot of advances have been made in the game. There's just so many things from a, you know, a safety standpoint that, you know, we used to do even as, you know, you used to bang your helmet against other players yeah. trying to, you know, get yourself fired up for a game. Or I remember you used to try to, you know, give yourself streaks on your helmet. You would bash your helmet against somebody else. You know, things that you just didn't do that were not logical on your, your, you know, your own decisions that you would make that you obviously do not do anymore. And with Matt, you know, I think Matt took responsibility for a lot of the poor decisions, some of the poor decisions that he made in life as we all make bad decisions. Matt never uh, cast those off on anything other than mistakes that he made. But I I do think that some of the, the, just the amount of concussions he had will explain, you know, I think CTE, played a part in some of the decisions he made. And uh, so we'll be interested. Uh, he donated his brain tissue uh, upon his death. That's usually an eight to 10 month process. So I would guess in the next month or two, we will get those results back and see if CTE did play a part. I will be absolutely shocked if he did not suffer from some form of CTE, and it wouldn't surprise me if he had a significant amount of brain trauma from you know, different athletic events and mm-hmm. sporting events that he played in. Yeah, I just, that was kind of his nature. You know, he he was a tough kid, and and he did not want to. Yeah, knowing what you know now, should he have sat out sometimes or sat himself out? Should we have pulled him out? Yeah, probably, but. Uh, <laughs> You, know, you just didn't know that back then. And I think now that we're aware of it, studies like this will, will help everybody out. So I'm glad that he was wanting and willing to do that. Yeah, I find it um, – I, too, will be shocked if he didn't have damage. And and I, I, I think we'll all look back and realize a lot of his substance issues probably were self-medicating um, to help through those things. And I don't like to talk about Matt's substance issues because – that didn't define him. It was just part of his Definitely. journey. And I, I've i had, you know, people bring it up. Did it cause prostate cancer? No, it didn't. It didn't. No, it had nothing to do with that. That's, that is not the entirety of Matt Miller's being was that he had issues. And um, maybe it was just in his nature, but I suspect it had something to do with the concussions. And it's funny, Marty, I look back at photos of Matt when he played. That helmet he's wearing in the 1990s which we think of as modern football it, it looks closer to like the the helmet you got at christmas as a little kid than it does to what we're wearing now on the football field right. it, it just looks like a toy helmet and it probably offered very limited protection to concussion well and i and we've, we've definitely i have a son who plays football and you know the advances in technology are amazing and 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 i think Part of that is due to the fact that people have raised awareness 
about the issues. Now I agree with you that, uh, you know, I think that they probably did play a part in some of the decisions he made, but, but he would never say anything other than it was his responsibility. He took responsibility for the decisions he made. And, uh, and I think that was always something that was admirable about him. He's quarterback. Yeah. It's yep. quarterback. The receiver ran the wrong route, but my fault, you know, you just take, uh, yeah. you, you just take responsibility. It's funny. Um, you started this off talking about as Matt as a little kid and how he grew up into being such a tough sucker. Um, I, it, it's amazing how that works. And he was so tough during his cancer journey. I, he just put up with so much. Um, I'm just, uh, I mean, I was inspired by him, honestly, brother. I, 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 think every, I, think, I think everybody was, anybody, who, you know, it was obvious when you came to the hospital that last week of his life, you know, when he would get up from the bed to use the restroom, you really could see the pain just in moving. And then when you saw his body and the you know, cancer, there's no easy way to describe what had happened to his body except for it had fallen apart. Right. Yeah. It was bruised and beaten and it, it just it felt so sorry for him and just the the amount of pain he was in. And it was evident that you know he was not complaining about it. He never complained, but you know, he fought cancer to the very end. And my wife said it was like the Dylan Thomas you know, poem, do not go gentle into the dark night. And that's how Matt was. He was, he fought and fought and fought. And I think one thing that was, if you don't mind me telling another story about the end there was when, when I got to the hospital, Matt was on pretty heavy medicine to pain medicine. And so during the course of the day, they were, there were limits to how much they could give him, but, um, so there were times where you, you were talking to him and he wasn't all there. But soon after a day or two of being there, I realized when he woke up in the middle of the night, usually around two or three in the morning, and it was a great situation from a setup, is he had a room and then there was an adjacent suite. And so when I arrived on the 31st, I did not have to leave the hospital any night. You know, we were able to, friends and family were able to sleep in this suite next to him. And so you would hear him get up and use the restroom and I would go and, and talk to him at two or three in the morning. And he was very lucid during that time and was talking and, and it was like having the old Matt back. And, um, you know, during that time, one time he said, you know, I feel like I know I'm dying, but it shouldn't feel like, he said, I just don't feel like I'm dying. I know, I know my body's breaking down on me. I just don't feel like, it's time to die. And he said that, you know, it just was breaking your heart to hear him talk. And he said, he said the, the thing that worries, scares me the most is the actual moment of death. You know, just that I won't be around anymore. So the only thing that gives me comfort in that time is he said, it's like a mantra in my mind. He said, I just repeat the words from John three sixteen over and over again in my head. And so he used that Bible verse as kind of as, you know, a calming influence for him. He, he said, whenever I worry about the actual moment of death, I just repeat this over and over again. Now, if you, you go forward a few days uh, towards the end when he was unconscious, you know, we did not ever have him alone in the room. He, he From the moment, from Christmas Day on, there was someone in the room with Matt always. And, you know, they, they, they would tell you the stories in the hospital about people hanging on until certain family members come and visit. But I think it was the opposite with Matt. I don't think he wanted to pass away with people in the room with him. I, I don't think he, he just loved everybody so much that he didn't want people there. And so after a while, we just decided, you know, people started less and less visitors we were allowing in and, you know, we got down to the last day or two, and uh, it was me and his oldest daughter were there on the last day. And I went to take a shower on that Saturday evening, and she had gone out for a walk and had come back. And I said, hey, now that you're back, I'm going to run down and take a shower. So I ran down to the floor below us, 
took a shower. I came back up from taking the shower. And when I walked in the room, when I was walking into the room, I saw his daughter walking into the room and I heard her kind of yell out, you know, in agony and tears that, you know, it was clear that Matt was gone. And what had happened, she had, Matt was having some trouble breathing and she called the nurses in. And when that happened, they would readjust him. And she left to go use the restroom while they were readjusting him. And he passed away in that mm. one minute where there was no family or friends with him. And um, I think you're right. You know, I, I, I just don't think he wanted to pass away with family or friends around. And, uh, you know, one thing that was amazing about that was his daughter, Mia, was just so heartbroken that she wasn't there for the actual moment because we'd all, we wanted to be there with him to comfort him. And she said, that was the weirdest thing, Uncle Marty. When I got up to leave, I started walking out of the room and I went back in and I whispered in his ear, John 316, for some reason. He said, I don't know why I did that, but I just felt the need to share a Bible verse with him. And I said, well, did I, I, I had to have told you about him saying that when he was afraid to die, that his mantra was John 316. She said, Marty, nobody ever told me that. Mm. And um, just, you know, I think it was, whether you believe in divine inspiration or not, I think, you know, for her in that moment to just say that to him was a comfort to him to say, you know, it's was allowing him to pass on. She walked out of the room and 30 seconds after she said that to him, he passed away. And, uh, you know, it was just, I think that that gave us comfort, all of us comfort that he didn't want to pass away with us in the room or around. He didn't want us to see him go. And so he was comforted with the fact that the room was the first time the room had been empty in nearly two weeks. And he passed away in that one minute window where no one was there with him. It was... And if that's the way he chose to go, you know, man, that's, I'm glad he got to go out on yeah, his terms. I right? agree. You know, yeah, that, yeah. that meant a lot to all of us. He might not physically be with us, but he's always with us, man. He, I think of him often. He inspired me. Um, bless you. I mean, I, I look yeah. forward to seeing you in July and, uh, definitely. Thank sit you around so and much. Laugh and, and, uh, make fun of, and, of Bucky a little bit. And I, I understand that congratulations are in order to you, correct, for your yeah. diagnosis, and now you're the optimism in your situation, correct? Yeah, uh, I was declared in remission in December, and um, you know, in the big picture, it doesn't mean much, but it it means you're not down thirty. You're you're, you're up at halftime, and you, there's, you get, there's no doubt you got to hang on to the lead. Marty, no thank doubt. you so much. Thank you so much Please. for your time. It was thank, great. thank you for everything. Okay, love you, brother. I'll see you in July. Yep, love you too. Appreciate it. Thank you. That took a lot out of me. We didn't get into this. Marty is fighting Parkinson's. It seems like the Miller family is going through a lot of challenges right now. The loss of Matt and Father Les were just catastrophic to be so close together. But Matt should have had a lot of life left, and he didn't. But in some ways, he lives on. I'll be so happy to get together with other friends and people, honestly, I haven't met to talk about Matt in July when they have the memorial here in Kansas. Always try to tie these episodes up in a neat little bow at the end with a little something. I've learned a lot from having cancer. And one of them is I'm spiritual, not really religious. I mean, the fact that I don't go to organized service that often, but I'm a believer. And I also believe you need to tell everyone that you love, that you love them. If it's family or friend or wife or children, just a buddy or someone you really don't know that well, but have shared something. That's me and Marty. John 316. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I'll talk to you next week on The Life of Fitz.
You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel, streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app.